I want to help them think smarter, to, to view the world through the lens of evidence. And sometimes this brightens your life, so people greatly underestimate progress that's being made in the world. And so it's, uh, we were both raised, by the way, with a keen sense of, of stewardship, a, a sense that ultimately what we're given is in some ultimate spiritual sense, not ours. We are mere stewards of it. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Okay, good day everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk Talk Listen. And as always, I'm I'm really excited to, to talk with today's guest, um, who actually you know comes from the area where I will walk my eleventh hundred mile um, at the end of this month, at the end of March, uh, Seattle. Um, but as always, he will introduce himself. Dave, please go ahead. So yes, Maurice, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Um, my father was an insurance agent. I worked in the family business, and that was one potential vocation for me. I went off to college in Spokane and majored in chemistry, minored in biology, hoping to become a doctor. Worked three summers in the county hospital in Seattle. I took mm. the medical college admissions test. I half completed my applications to medical school and then decided after my hospital experiences, which were very interesting, that mm. I didn't want to become a doctor. So I wanted to become a professor and needed something to profess. Uh, what was that going to be? So uh, I thought back to the one psychology class I'd had in my first year of college and almost on a lark, took some more classes in that area, got into graduate school in social psychology at the University of Iowa. And that led to my becoming a professor at a place called Hope, Hope College here in Holland, Michigan at age 24, where I spent my career the last 56 years. Uh, and so I came here to teach, but I also got interested in some research on the effects of small group discussion on people's attitudes. And that research flourished enough that it led to uh, an invitation to do some writing. First, uh, a book, and it ended up being several books that kind of explore the intersection of psychological science and Christian faith. And then some textbook writing uh, that has really been my primary vocation for the last uh, 40 years really authoring textbooks for introductory psychology and social psychology. And so I spend my days mostly reading psychological science and making words march up a screen as a communicator of psychological science. And that's what I'm here to do today at Hope College after we finish our conversation. <laughs> and and when you, you know, for the listeners, when you talk about some books, I mean, this is not some books. There are many books that you wrote, right? How, how many in total? Well, yes, uh, 18. And so sometimes I read things that I'm reporting on for college and university students, and now most of the students taking AP psychology classes in the world, uh, that strike me as so interesting, so fascinating, so humanly significant that I think the world should know about this. And so some of these things then I can package as little bite-sized essays that are on a blog site. It's just talk 
psych.com or into trade books uh, on the powers and perils of intuition or the scientific pursuit of happiness or what we've learned about marriage and sexual orientation or uh, the psychology of hearing and hearing loss uh, and so forth. And most recently, I have a trade book published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux this last fall. This just a collection of essays, uh, fun, 40 little kind of bite-sized uh, uh, phenomena on the peculiarities uh, and the curiosities and the marvels of the human mind. Wow. And by the way, all, all of this is available to anybody at my website, which is just my name, davidmyers.org. The only trick there is spelling Myers correctly. Just like spelling Bloom correctly, <laughs> yes. David Myers M Y E R S dot yeah. org, and, and it, you know I, I definitely uh, want to encourage the listeners to, to to check out your website. It's it's uh, that's a lot of stuff out there, and and you know as Dave uh, explained, you know different, yeah, a lot of a lot of knowledge uh, there. So it's it, um, as part of preparing me for. Today's uh, talk. I was more than an afternoon, you know, fascinated by the different um, things you've written about. I would like to to pick three things though, um, and it's the first your book about happiness. You know what? what uh, I, I think that's kind of key um, nowadays, where where uh, you know around the world, the number of people that are struggling with mental health and. You know, finding meaning, and uh, I mean, I think uh, recently uh, John Clifton of Gallup wrote his book Blind Spot, that also uh, is looking at at the happiness index. Um, so, what is your book uh, about? What did you find, and and uh, yeah, what are, are some of the things that you you think are important for our listeners to know about? So, to boil it all down to a few sentences, I mm -hmm. mean, I was looking at the research literature on the things that do and don't predict people's happiness. So there are things you'd think might predict happiness, like gender or or age, uh, uh, money, and so forth, income, that either don't or are more modest predictors of happiness than what you would suspect. Uh, and the money happiness question is one of particular interest. Uh, that's a little nuanced, and that could be a little side conversation. Other things that really do matter are, first of all, close supportive connections. We're social animals. We have a deep need to belong. And so people who are supported by close friendship, uh, which may include a, a flourishing marriage, tend to be happier and live longer than those who live more alone and without close social connections. So that's, that's probably a really, really important thing. There are some traits that mark happy lives, and these are genetically influenced traits, too. like. Uh, extroversion, self-esteem, a sense of personal control over one's life, and so forth. And we also find that religious engagement is a predictor of personal happiness. Mm -hmm. If we compare individuals in the United States, for example, so uh, people who attend uh, religious services weekly are much more likely to say they're very happy than those who never attend. And mm -hmm. of course, they're finding social support and community and meaning and uh, purpose, hope, and so forth uh, through that religious faith. That's not the only way to find those things, but that is a place where one can find such. So those would just be some examples mm -hmm. of some of the, I think, findings that lead us to be able to offer some evidence-based suggestions for living a happier life and where yeah. one should place one's priorities. So, so Dave, if if um, if I'm 
hearing it well what you're saying in terms of you know, for people because I would like to piggyback a little bit around the faith and, and uh, religion apart. Uh, I, I think what we're seeing, especially in the West, is that the younger generation tends to you know not be part of church anymore. It doesn't mean maybe that they are uh, not spiritual. Um, will that then have maybe implications for their happiness? The fact that they don't go to an institutionalized uh, yeah, religion? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right that the increase in the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, the people who have no religious identification, has increased, and particularly so among younger people. And this is partly the fault of the church itself. And so we know that the church has taken, uh, is perceived to have taken, particularly the conservative uh, end of the church, some postures of uh, anti-gay attitudes, for example, or, you know, not being sensitive to climate realities or uh, support of racist ideologies that are anathema to young people that are driving people away from the church. So the church can be its own worst enemy. Does this have implication for the mental health of young people? Well, independently, we know that the mental health of young people, particularly of teens, and particularly of teen girls, is some, is is really in a bad way right now. There's been a lot of ink spilled on this topic recently. Dramatic increase, really the doubling of rates of depression and suicide ideation and even emergency room visits among teens and young adults, and again, particularly uh, teen females. And so. Why is this? Could the decline of religious hope and connection and, and, and purpose and so forth be part of that? It could be. But we also know pretty clearly by now that it's, uh, there are social media influences because the dramatic rise in teen dysfunction uh, corresponds exactly with the rise in smartphone penetration and mm. social hours spent on social media. We also know that the more hours a teen spends on social media, when it gets above two hours a day, the more at risk they are. And we know that if we track longitudinally where social media have come and when, and then track depression, teen depression rates after that, we see them going up. And there are also experiments that have uh, controlled the, the social media diet of teens or college students and found exactly what you'd track. So we have a convergence of evidence that indicates that social media are playing a big factor in this. But the decline of uh, religious connection and community could certainly be part of that because social media are displacing all sorts of things. They're displacing not just face-to-face -face relationships, but sleep, you know, uh, religious community and so mm -hmm. forth. So these things are all interrelated. Yeah, yeah. That's a long answer. But agreeing with me when, when I said, um, you know, it seems that the younger generation doesn't go to, to church or not anymore or, or, you know, is disconnected from. Is that also something that you see? Within, because I know you go to church as well. That's, that's right. an important aspect. Do you see that in your own church as well, in your own community? You know, yeah, to, less to some extent. To some extent, although I, I, it would be an overstatement to say that young people don't go to church anymore because, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you come here to Hope College and uh, where three times a week chapel is not required of anybody, but the place is packed with like 800 students. Uh, 
And so there are certainly places where religious engagement is very much alive and very vital. And, uh, uh, you know, th this would be one such place. And I see kids at my church. But but you're right. I mean, in general, uh, of, of course, mainline membership is declining. But that's that's partly a function of birth rates because uh, Episcopalians and Presbyterians don't have many babies uh, compared to Latter-day Saints. And so that affects the future growth or shrinkage of their denominations as well. I would like to, to go to the other uh, topic that you touched upon, and that is, um, and it's a big step. But I, I, I am also fascinated by this because I, I read about it on your on your website, and that's about a hearing loss, and you know something that you are experiencing yourself. Can you maybe explain about your own journey and why, um, you know, you feel passionate about improving um, this particular aspect, um, you know, in, in your work as well as for the foundation that that you have. Sure. So I'm a person with severe hearing loss uh, inherited from my mother, uh, mm -hmm. who got it from her mother. Uh, I was privileged to represent Americans with hearing loss on the uh, advisory council of NIH's National Institute on Deafness and Other Communication Disorders. And there I met um, a fellow advisor who was a hearing geneticist who uh, looked at my audiogram, that is my hearing loss profile, and said, I think I know the genetic basis for that. And so I sent him some spit and a few weeks later got back the genetic analysis and he identified that the single specific gene mutation that is the cause of my hearing loss. By the way, this is an illustration. Most human traits are caused by many genes together, having each having small effects. Now, this is a case where a single gene can have an effect on, uh, on uh, in this case, hearing. So I become uh, a a consumer of hearing technology. And during a visit back in 1999 to the Iona Abbey off the west coast of Scotland, I had new hearing aids, but I couldn't hear any of the sound spoken after it reverberated around those ancient stone walls. My wife, Carol, noticed a sign on the wall that indicated there was a hearing assistance system. There was a little T, letter T in the lower right corner, indicating that it was telecoil compatible. A telecoil is a magnetic sensor that now comes with many uh, hearing aids and virtually all cochlear implants. And when activated, it can receive a magnetic signal from a hearing assistance system uh, called, which we now call a hearing loop. And so she nudged me to activate the telecoil on my hearing aid by pressing a button. And suddenly, a crystal clear voice was speaking to me from the center of my head. It was like, wow, I didn't know sound like that was possible. I could probably hear better than anybody else. And in my subsequent travels, and we spend uh, three or four weeks in the UK each summer, I found this. It's at all the British cathedrals. It's in most British churches and auditoriums. It's in London taxis. It's at post office windows and so forth. In any one of those venues, all I have to do is just touch a button, and my hearing aids become customized in-the-ear speakers uh, delivering clear sound. And so I thought, gee, why can't we have this in the United States? Uh, I know this, I subsequently came to learn, this was in a very few spotty places, but not in any, uh, to any extensive uh, degree. 
So I said, well, let's try it out here in Holland, Michigan, in Zeeland, Michigan, our adjacent town. And so we had a community campaign. And the bottom line is virtually every worship place and every auditorium uh, in schools in the community, in this community, now has this technology. So I worshiped yesterday in my church. Uh, the, the pastor gets up to speak. I just push a button. And the speakers aren't 30 feet away from me. They're right inside my ears. I don't have to check mm -hmm. out any equipment. I don't have to wear any special conspicuous or embarrassing mm -hmm. equipment. People love it, and they use it. And so I created a website, hearingloop.org. And now there's a whole national network of people uh, uh, advocating for this technology. I'm just mm -hmm. one among uh, a network, and it's affiliated with the Hearing Loss Association of America. It's in... Mm -hmm. uh, Oh, all kinds of venues. I mean, it's uh, it's coming to all the New York City airports. Um, Google Maps has embraced this as the hearing accessible technology that they want to make visible associated with public venues. Uh, it's in and already more than 5000 places have it. Uh, we're in conversation with, uh, you know, lots of places, including uh, the National Cathedral right now, which is exploring the possibility of installing the technology as part of their uh, upscaled uh, audio renovation. So anyway, that's kind of my advocacy, hearingloop.org. We'll take anybody to it. And by the way, if uh, anybody is at a worship place, uh, you should have this technology in your worship place. If mm -hmm. you want to be accessible in a, with technology that real people will actually use, that won't just... Uh, little receivers and headsets won't just sit in a rack at the back of the church because mm -hmm. people never pick them up and are embarrassed to use them. Uh, this is it. it. It really, really helps people hear the word, and it's the technology that people with hearing loss, once they've experienced it, want. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a saying in the disability community, nothing about us without us. So mm -hmm. uh, I think I can speak for the hearing loss community in saying, guys, this is where you ought to go, and this is what your worship place should have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hearing hearingloop.org. Okay, I, I maybe I have a couple of questions around this. I mean, first is, um, so you you lost your hearing gradually, and and so when, right. right? And when did that start? Well, it started. I was assessed as a teen. I was a case study for the neurology uh, unit at the University of Iowa mm -hmm. Medical School when I was in graduate school, but. I really kind of shunned hearing aids. Now I was about 40, but by the time I was in my 50s, it was really becoming a challenge, even with hearing aids. Mm. Without my hearing technology, we could not have this conversation. Without my hearing aid mm. or cochlear implant, I cannot hear my wife on the pillow next to me unless I, I put my my uh, my ear, my, my functioning ear about four yeah. inches from her mouth. Oh. But oh. with it, you and I are having no trouble having yeah, this conversation. Yeah. Okay. And and did you know in advance that that would be coming to you because your your mom had it, or was no, it still no, a surprise I, that it also happened to you? No, I mean, so I didn't. I wasn't genetically identified as the child okay. that had it, but yeah. that's just how it unfolded in my adult life. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and then the other question I had: so, so why is it that in the states we are behind in comparison yeah, to the, you know? It's sort of like. Europe. I don't know, video technology, the U.S. went VHS and the U.K. went a different than Europe, went a different technology. And mm. the U.K. went this route that was hearing instrument compatible. Mm. And the U.S.A. went 
to an easier to install technology that's hearing instrument incompatible. And so most worship places have hearing assistance, but it's with either an FM radio transmission or an infrared transmission. And it requires the user to check out a little cigarette pack size case that's attached to a headset. So you have to take the initiative to check out and then wear this equipment that is generally not compatible with your hearing aids and delivers inferior sound and is visible and conspicuous, which a lot of people just, they'll, they'll just sit there and not hear rather than, as one of my friends said, look like a World War II aviator in the midst of church. Whereas if all you have to do when you're having trouble hearing in an auditorium, a lecture, a worship, yeah. is just touch a button and bingo, your hearing instruments are the speakers. Duh, which yeah. of those two are you more likely to use? So this technology, which requires installing a wire, and that's why will the National Cathedral be able to do it? I'm hoping they can by slicing the grout between the stones, but we'll see. It's got to be invisible. There has to be an invisible wire that encircles the audience, and that costs more mm -hmm. than just plugging in an FM or an infrared transmitter. But if it costs twice as much or three times as much to install, but 10 times as many people will use it, the cost per user will actually be less for this technology than for technology that is in movie theaters but almost never gets used. It meets the ADA requirements, and yet it sits on shelves and movie after movie goes by and nobody checks it out and nobody uses it. Um, I, I would like us to uh, go to your books. Um, why do you write so many books? You know, what is, why are you passionate about it? What do you hope to, to achieve? Sure. So uh, that wasn't my idea of my vocational calling. I was going to be a researcher in my field and uh, a teacher. And then I just got an invitation to write books and an invitation from a publisher. I mean, it wasn't my idea to write textbooks, but the invitation came from the publishers uh, who talked me into doing this. And then when I decided to take on the process, first of all, I saw it as a chance to amplify my teaching. So it takes the teaching I'm doing here at Hope College and simply multiplies it many times over to a world far beyond the people that I look at face to face. And so whatever merit there is to teaching, whatever whatever the potential there is there for expanding minds about human nature and teaching people a spirit of compassion and understanding, to teaching critical thinking about important things, uh, if that's important, then do it, doing it through the printed word as well as through the spoken word is important. But except I can have an audience that's a thousand times greater. And so that then led me to really work at developing myself as a writer by reading great books of, uh, of nonfiction, by reading writing manuals, and by being mentored by an award-winning poet through about 5,000 manuscript pages who became my writing coach. And so kind of the combination of Developing myself as a writer and then reading my discipline and figuring out what's worth reporting on. Mm. And and again, if people would like just some little bite-sized samples of it, they could go to talkpsych.com and you can see something you can read in three minutes. Mm. Great. Yeah. And and I will make sure also all those links will be mentioned in the podcast notes. Um 
you know, talking, thanks for explaining that, uh, Dave, around, you know, why you're writing books. You have been really successful with your books. And what I find, um, you know, not only fascinating, but also something that I admire is that uh, you are using the royalties for the foundation that you started together with your wife. Uh, two questions around it. You know, one is um, why you started, and second is um, you know, what are you? What is the foundation doing? Explain a bit about uh, about that. So, uh, and I, first of all, Maurice, I should say I don't want to overemphasize my success. So, some of my trade books have kind of fallen flat. I mean, okay. uh, every yeah. every author who comes out with a new book has great <laughs> fantasies about making the New York Times bestseller list. I've never yeah. done that, and so forth. So, I, I don't want to overestimate. I mean, this recent book of essays, mm -hmm. I just love. I'm terribly excited mm -hmm. about it, but it hasn't. You know, it's gotten some good reviews. Wall Street Journal, you know, mm -hmm. other places have been nice, but it hasn't lived up to my fantasies as yet. Okay. Uh, my uh, textbooks, on the other hand, have greatly exceeded my expectations. Mm. And so my social psych text has generated enough royalties and we retain those royalties and we live off those royalties. So I, uh, I'm still working at Hope College at age 80, but I have not drawn a salary or taught, a, taught regular mm. classes in more than a quarter century. So I, I exist on zero salary, but, wow. the, but the royalties from that one book have funded our life. Then the introductory psych text turned out to be, uh, it's the most widely used psychology book, and it has produced, it sold uh, uh, 8 million copies and produced uh, many tens of millions mm -hmm. of dollars in royalties just between us and our audience. It's just, so it's very confidential, of course. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, I don't talk about these things uh, much. It's just, I mean, my colleagues don't have any idea. Uh, okay. But um, there, as the money came into us, my mm -hmm. wife, Carol, and I would have an occasional conversation with this question, how much is enough? At what point do we have enough money? And I'm an optimist. I mean, I, to me, I crossed that threshold very early. She's a more realist. She anticipates tragedies that can happen or children becoming disabled and so forth. And you wouldn't want to foreclose yourself to, to what, what could have helped you. And but we reached a point finally where both of us were comfortable that we had enough money. And so from that point forward, all the royalties from my introductory psychology text and my trade book, but primarily they come from my introductory psych text, uh, go to this charitable foundation, uh, David and Carol Myers Foundation. And so from that we give, we're mandated, of course, to give five percent uh uh out of whatever the asset value of the average of the last three years has to be given away every year. And ultimately we'll give away the assets of the foundation as well, which will not survive us. And so it's, uh, we were both raised by the way, with a keen sense of, of stewardship, hmm. uh, a, a sense that ultimately what we're given is in some ultimate spiritual sense, not ours. We are mere stewards of it. Okay. And so if we were to, have that money go from the publishers directly into the foundation, uh, then there's more money. We're, we're being good stewards of that money, and there's more things we can do with it, including supporting Church World Service, than there would be if if we accepted it as income. Mm -hmm. And so, and then there's also that research I alluded to briefly earlier in our conversation that has educated me that if we were to keep the money and just buy bigger houses or I mean, I don't know, fancier cars or whatever, 
it really wouldn't make us any happier and our children wouldn't be any happier if they inherited wealth and so we want to be lovingly supportive of them but 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 wealth is not the key to well-being i mean i i'm not saying money is trivial church world service works in lots of places where impoverished people who could have who, who if they had more money and could afford life's necessities and have more freedom would have a, a better life. Mm-hmm. But once you have enough to have those things, then having more and more money and spending it in materialistic ways is, and I'm not being and I will sanctimonious here or self-congratulatory, it's just a fact mm-hmm. of life. Uh, uh, people who have many millions aren't happier than people who only have one or two million. That's just That's just the truth. <laughs> You did, so and you that, did that, research about it, right? So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that plus the yeah. sense of stewardship, it just yeah. seemed like the way to go. And yeah. I'm aware of, of who you are and, and the foundation because I've worked for, for CWS and, and um but there are many more courses. And organizations that you support, I, I think it's, yeah, it's it, uh, we are really thankful for your support, and I also know that the others are, are as well. Um, Dave, I would like to to go make a switch and and um, to remind the listeners that one of the reasons that I started this podcast because it's a spin-off of a hundred mile walk that I started to do more than ten years ago. I'm, I'm preparing for the eleventh at the end of March, as I said earlier. Um, so, you know, I wanted to give a tribute, uh, a kind of give back to the crop hunger walk community, to all those volunteers by walking for hunger, poverty and injustice. Uh, so I walk 100 miles in a week. Um, my question to you is, if you would be asked to walk, walk 100 miles in a week, uh, for which cause would you walk? That's a good question. So. My avocational passion, I mean, has been supporting people with hearing loss. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that money, <laughs> money isn't isn't what we need so much as as influence, mm-hmm. and we need to get the word out. Uh, so, uh, uh, which you which you will get when you well, if you do it well, hopefully, yeah. You know, I I walk not only to raise money, but also walk to raise awareness and and uh, right. Yeah. Oh, certainly. And and there are hearing walks all across the United States, mm-hmm. so that could be what I would say. Uh, my wife Carol, you know, headed the crop walk here in Holland, which for many years was one of the biggest in the United States. Particularly when she was kind of co-leading that, uh, you know, one of the organizers of that. And so walking so that others who walk, you know, can have a more flourishing livelihood mm-hmm. is certainly something. Uh, I have walked. Or, you know, in many crop walks uh, over my lifetime. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, what I started to do is, I, you know, one of the objectives of the, of this podcast is also to connect people because I believe that, you know, if you, you know, show different perspectives of the different guests, but also from the listeners that they hear different perspectives, you know, that could be a start of dialogue, and dialogue is important to, uh, you know. To make this world a little bit better, there's a lot of polarization going on. So one of the most, you know, well, one of the efforts that I'm I'm doing is always come up with a question of a previous guest for for my present guest. So 
If you give me a second, I I have a question from our previous guest for you. So my question for the next guest is, where do you see, where do, what do you think is needed in order for us to make society a better place? And what drives you to do, do the great things that you're doing? And that's, of course, without knowing who the next guest is. But what drives that person? What, what drives them to continue to do the hard work? So that's a lovely question. And I'd say one, one concern that animates me, certainly in my writing about psychological science, is trying to replace misinformation with evidence-based thinking. There are so many clear examples of how people simply believe the wrong things. They believe things that are blatantly untrue. Let me just give you some quick examples. So, for example, in the United States, multiple surveys have found that people who've received the multiple doses of the COVID vaccine fear still COVID more than people who are unvaccinated. That's irrational. People are have the perception in the United States in annual Gallup surveys that crime is rising every year. Seventy uh, percent of Americans think crime is greater than the year before, but crime since uh, for the last thirty years has been falling uh, with little blips now and then. It leveled off recently. Uh, people think immigrants commit more crime than non-immigrant populations, but they commit less. People fear school shootings are going to harm their kids, and they're all up in arms about this, even though they will put their child in a car and drive cross-country with no fear, when that puts their child at many times more risk. So part of my passion is helping people, at least the people who read my books, um, particularly my uh, AP psych students and college and university psychology students, I want to help them think smarter to... Uh, to, to view the world through the lens of evidence. And sometimes this brightens your life. So people greatly underestimate progress that's being made in the world with the spread of clean water, of child vaccinations, of increase in child literacy, uh, women's rights across the world. If you ask people about these things, they, they see a much grimmer picture than is reality. So my concern is rampant misinformation, uh, which infects our civic discourse and our personal lives. And what I'm trying to do is be part of the educational process that's an antidote to that. Thanks, Dave. Um, yeah, your question for the next guest. My question for the next guest is, what will be your legacy? What do you hope Will make will be slightly different as a result of your having been here on the planet Earth. Maybe it's what will be said in your obituary. What is that thing? You know, I, I music is very important to me, so I always have a question about music as well. And and this is kind of considered to be my most difficult question by many of my guests. <laughs> but if I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best embodies for a big part who you are. Uh, of what you are about, which song or piece of music would that be, and why? Well, that's a it is a tough question, and I, you know, not sure how I'd answer that. But I thought, well, I love Amazing Grace, 
And the whole idea of grace, showing grace to everybody who crosses my path, including those whom I might disagree with or whom I might not instantly take a liking to, but showing them acceptance and understanding, understanding where they're coming from and trying to get inside their minds. Uh, I, I want to, I want to, I want to be a person of grace, just as great grace and ultimate grace has been given to me. Amazing grace. And and do you, if you look back at you know your life so far, have you been successful there? Do you consider it to be a good, you know, living, uh, giving, providing people with grace? Or yes, I mean, and if I look upon my life as a whole, I mean, I mm -hmm. sometimes say. It has unfolded in ways that I never anticipated, mm. and that's the life story of of everybody. I mean, I was talking to some visiting high school students looking at Hope College, and I was yeah. saying, "What you're dreaming about in, is your future." I can make a very confident prediction. That's not what your future is going to be. It's going to be something else. And in some ways, life has had unexpected satisfactions and rewards and successes that I never would have anticipated. It's also had challenges. Uh, and disappointments and some pain uh, that I never would have anticipated. Uh, so the life course hasn't been what I guessed, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to be alive and looking forward to whatever uh, whatever life is yet ahead of me uh, to be able to, to live it meaningful, meaningfully and with hope and purpose. Um, yeah, I, I told you um, that I'm the, the main representative for CWS at the UN. So, you know, I'm involved with a lot of work and policies. Um, and and I, I'm really passionate about you know, what actually as we as a world agreed upon in terms of how we are going to make this world better. And that is by reaching the 17 sustainable development goals that we identified as, as a world. Um, it's not perfect. But, you know, uh, at least it's part is a result of a discussion that, that went on for, for a number of years. Um, so my question to you is, um, have you heard about the Sustainable Development Goals, one? And second, uh, if so, what do you want the listeners to know about uh, the SDGs, about the Sustainable Development Goals? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not intimately familiar with the sustainable mm -hmm. development goals. I am very concerned with sustainable development and okay. with the world's climate future. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in, uh, I, I have a book on, I, excuse me, a chapter in my social psychology text on entitled Social Psychology and the Sustainable Future. It's what does my discipline have to contribute to the persuasion that's needed to contribute to a sustainable future. I'm interested in having our foundation uh, make a contribution in some way that's appropriate. And right now we're in conversation with the American Association for the Advancement of Science about a possible climate change education initiative in theological seminaries. Uh, and so I'm very attuned to the sustainability goals. And by the way, that they also inform the investing of our uh, family foundation. And so mm -hmm. The Investment Fund Foundation, which supports family foundations, community foundations, now has a whole sustainability uh, fund that is investing in sustainable enterprises. So I'm very attuned to the to the goals 
even though the details of the UN program, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not intimately in detail familiar with. Yeah. happy that you you mention uh, climate change and sustainability is an important um, issue that we need to look at um, you know a, a lot of a, a growing number of people in, in the world is is uh, is saying you know one of the reasons that um, we are not making the progress that we need to make on those goals so towards this more sustainable world has to do is that we did not pay proper attention to the skills, abilities, and, and knowledge that we need as individuals and as community. So you're looking at system changes, but you're not doing the work as an individual and as community. So as a result, uh, they came up, they did a survey, and as a result of that survey, they came up with five inner development goals, being, thinking, relating, collaborating, and action. So if you hear me say this, what what are your thoughts? In well, terms my of... initial, initial thought is uh, you're talking about something that psychological science should have something to help with. Being, being thinking, relating, that's social psychology, uh, uh, and action. Uh, so you know, in social psychology, we think of attitudes, for example. The ABCs <laughs> of attitudes are kind of action. Uh, I mean, affect, emotion, B, behavior, and C, cognition or thinking. Mm -hmm. And so all those wrapped together are what define an attitude. So uh, I would hope that psychological science could make a contribution to understanding uh, each of those components. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, absolutely. I, 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 I would agree. I mean, I, the, 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 my listeners know that I'm a kind of a fan of the philosopher Ken Wilber. And, and you know what he often talks about is every perspective has at least four perspectives. I, we, it, and it. So if you if you want to change the system or a process, you can't do that without acknowledging that there is an I and a we as well. So so uh, even even if you have a focus on the system, you need to be aware that, that you need to work on yourself. Right. You need to work on your community. So um, and and you know I. People should read some of your books, right? To uh, to be more familiar with with the psychology uh, that is that is required, uh, which is an important aspect of that. You know, recently I came across um, the fact that uh, I am not really familiar still, although I live in this country now for more than 13 years, but uh, a, a person called uh, Steve Hartman of CBS, who has made some videos right. um, I've or a television series about the, the, yeah, the, the gift or the kindness, uh, you know, the, the simple act of kindness and the, the possible rippling effect of that. Two questions around this. Yeah, wh what do you think about a simple act of kindness and the possible rippling effect that's one and then second is um if i would ask you to be to come up with a simple act of kindness right now um what would you do so the first question is do you think in do you believe in this does it have merit and second is an action uh, absolutely it has merit and mm -hmm. i would take you and your listeners back to my blog, talkspike.com. One of the recent essays was on uh, the 
Happy Science of Micro-Friendship. That's also one of the essays in this new book of mm -hmm. essays. And what it does is it describes some research in which different research teams in experiments paid people to either undertake a little act of warmth or of kindness to somebody or not. It could be to, uh, to a Turkish bus driver at a Turkish university to either make no eye contact, eye contact in your usual way or to greet that person in a friendly way and thank them for the bus ride. Afterwards, those who did that ended up feeling happier. They got off the bus in a better mood. Or taking people who are about to enter Starbucks and giving them a $5 gift certificate to be in the experiment, and you're either to behave in a kind of blasé, distant way, or you're to show kindness to the barista and engage them in some little bit of banter. Afterwards, those who did those little micro friendships uh, acts uh, were happier and they left people happier or in another experiment to and this feels like it would really be awkward you're passing somebody on the sidewalk and you notice something about them maybe it's how they look or what they're wearing or whatever just stop and pay them a compliment out of the blue this feels mm -hmm. awkward okay but people do that and having done it everybody's happier and so uh, these experiments on what I call the happy science of micro-friendships, where you have little fleeting relationships with people that you strike up a conversation with rather than just ignore, are things you, you and I can apply as we are engaged with strangers in the grocery store line or picking up our coffee in the coffee shop uh, or, or whatever. Reach out and touch somebody. Take the initiative, even if it feels a little awkward. You're bright, you'll brighten their day and you'll brighten your own. So is, the, is that what you will do yourself today? Well, I've already done it in the coffee shop that I visited before I came here. <laughs> and, and as a matter of fact, I, the, the owner of this locally owned coffee shop was there talking to some people and I interrupted them and I said, look at what's happening right now. Cheryl, who's the owner of the coffee shop, she's serving people food, but she's enabling so much good to happen. Look behind me. There's a couple of city officials having a meeting, meaningful meeting. There's somebody getting some work done on their laptop. And look at that young couple over my right shoulder. Look at her eyes, everything. That woman is in love with that guy. There's no rings on them yet, but there's, but there, I, I think there may be at some point. She's serving food, but she's also doing so much more. And I walked out of that coffee shop. I was feeling happy, and I left those people with smiles on their faces and the owner thinking about the significance of what her business is enabling. So that happened like an hour ago. Okay. I love that. I love that story. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, the listeners listening to your story are also smiling. Yeah, well, what I wanted to ask you, you know, so um, when... When I'm going to walk in the area of Seattle uh, at the end of this month, so, well, actually it's a week from now, and I'm, I'm continuing to say end of the month to, to push it away because I'm not in good shape yet, but it's it's coming closer and closer. Um, but I also, you know, I will meet with uh, you know, people from the local areas and, and that support, you know, local food banks uh, are working on all kinds of issues. But I also hope to be able to show the area of Seattle and, and what Seattle is about. What would you wish people that are not familiar with Seattle would get 
by following me or listening while I'm over there? You know, what do you want people to to know about Seattle? Uh, well, Seattle is a city of hills that faces the water. And so you could, on your walk, do some very beautiful walks along the waterfront in West Seattle or Magnolia, for example, that would be there would be beautiful walks to take and with nature, you know, at your side. And if you wanted to cross the sound to Bainbridge Island, where uh, I also spend part of my growing up life, I could, after we're done here, give you some advice about that. And you should walk out to the government locks and see the boats coming through as the water is lifted uh, from a Puget Sound level, lifts the boats up to the lake level. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Seattle Center offers beautiful glass exhibit to Huli. Uh, and then, of course, there's the international district of Seattle. There's the multicultural flavor of Seattle. There's the, all the technology companies that help define what Seattle is today. You could visit some of them. 100 miles gives you... Uh, how many days are you doing this over? Um, six days. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's about the right amount. Okay. Dave, these, these conversations always uh, go fast. Um, so my, my last question to you is any last message, invitation, or question for the listeners? We've talked about kind of life purposes and you know, what we're aspiring to do with our vocations and everything from the coffee shop owner who's both serving food but enabling relationships, my vocation as a research psychologist and writer has enabled me to have a certain purpose. What's the purpose in your life, I guess? I mean, uh, and, and this could be, I mean, whether you're a teacher or a postal carrier or wh whatever, what good things are you enabling that are larger than just the task that's in front of you right at this moment? Thank you so much, uh, Dave, for everything you do, for who you are, and, and you know, for sure support that you have been given to CWS over all those years. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm yeah, humbled by all of it. And um, yeah, all the best. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation, Maurice. With over 1,100 miles walked, Maurice is yet again training to walk 100 more. So for those of you who aren't familiar, which if you're an avid listener, I'm sure you are, the 100-mile hunger walk was started in 2012 by Maurice to raise funds and awareness to fight hunger and poverty around the world. This annual event came to be because Maurice was inspired by the spirit of volunteerism behind the CWS-sponsored Crop Hunger Walks, which are a community-organized charity event that takes place in over 500 locations across the U.S. each year. So because of this, Maurice decided to set out on his own journey and put his feet where his heart was. This year's 100-mile walk will take place from Monday, March 26th, to Saturday, April 1st, in Seattle, Washington. And on top of that, our fundraising campaign will run until the end of the summer. All the proceeds will go to support CWS's global programs that work to create a world where there is enough for all. So, how does 100 Mile work? Well, each year Bloom walks 100 miles through CWS and crop communities and spends his time meeting with our crop volunteer teams, with beneficiaries, with local community members, political officials, students, artists, and other like-minded individuals, like yourself, who work to support their community and hunger and promote a healthy and nutritious lifestyle. This year's theme is centered around the inner development goals, 
The idea behind these is that we must first unlock and grow our inner capacity, skills, and abilities to fully materialize humanitarian transformation. These IDGs are guiding principles that help us achieve our goals as we work with local communities here in the U.S. as well as in the 60 plus countries that we work in to help end hunger and poverty while building healthy communities through increased nutritious lifestyles, especially for children. So what are some ways that you can get involved? Well, for those in the Seattle area, you can come out and walk with us for a mile, maybe two, or you can see how long you last. But don't worry, you can always come out and just say hi, meet with Maurice, have a chat, and then send him on his way. So on top of that, another easy way to get involved is to make a donation. Participants are also able to start their own fundraising page to continue their efforts by reaching out to their own communities to get involved as well. So to make a donation or start your own fundraising page, click the link. Well, of course, you're wondering where. Go to the podcast notes and click in the links. In other exciting news, this year, Maurice has been chosen to be an ambassador for Knox Gear. Knox Gear is a brand company who makes safety and visibility gear for people and their pets who love to walk, run, play sports, or anyone who lives an active or outdoor lifestyle. And yes, you're right. Also, this link can be found in the podcast notes. When the link is used to make any Knox Gear purchase... 10% of the total purchase will be donated back to support CWS hunger and nutrition programs. So for anybody interested in joining us, getting more involved, or simply just wanting to stay connected, you can send us an email at innovationhub at cwsglobal.org. You're right. You can find the link again in the podcast notes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, if you haven't already, become a Walk Talk Listen subscriber. So let's get walking together. And don't forget to hashtag go the extra 100 mile. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.